0: and all of our worship and Father even as we sing that I know each one is convicted in various measures how we have been worshipped you and you alone forgive us our sins we pray and now as we come to the word I pray that you would enable us to worship you by listening by receiving by embracing all that is true about Christ nothing less and nothing more and we may delight in him and rejoice in him and enjoy him and glorify Him. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Turn, please, to John in chapter 17. John chapter 17. I want to read verses 1 through 5. John 17, please. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now, in these weeks coming to Easter, uh, I'm uh, uh, focusing our attention on the cross of our Lord Jesus, and I'm asking the question, why did he die? For what purpose did he die? What did Jesus accomplish in his death, you remember from last week, if you were here my thesis, if you will, or what's, what's, what's moving all of this is that that Christ died and how Christ died, are both observable facts of history. But why Christ died, the purpose for which Christ died, what Christ accomplished on the cross, is a fact of history, but can only be known by revelation, by God revealing it to us. That is? If you had been in Jerusalem on the day that Jesus was betrayed and you were walking around and you could see it, and you, what you would have seen is that very fact that Judas, his disciple, is this one who was with him, betrayed him with a kiss. Jesus was arrested. You would have seen that Jesus, when they came to arrest Jesus, and they said, is this you Jesus? And he said, I am. You would have seen the guards fall down. You have seen Peter cut the ear off of one of the soldiers. You would have seen Jesus put it back on. I would have given you a hint right away that he was in control of this whole situation. I still think it's quite ironic that after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, they said, let's kill him. I don't know what they were thinking. But it was clear that Jesus was voluntarily, you could see that, there's a sense in which he's giving himself over to them because he he could have just walked away when they fell. He could have, the power that it took to put this guy's ear on could have been used in some way, shape, or form to get Jesus out of this fix. But But he went with them. You would have seen that they took him to the Sanhedrin, to the council, where he saw Caiaphas. You would see that they sent him to Pilate and Herod and Pilate again. You would see that he was beaten, and you could have watched it, a ferocious beating. You could have seen them condemn Jesus to die, call for his death. he would be condemned to die. You would have seen him take that crossbar and walk to the cross. You would have seen him fall under the weight of it. You would have seen someone come and, and pick that cross up after being conscripted to do so, and Jesus going... To Calvary, Jesus being nailed to that cross, Jesus being hung on that cross, Jesus speaking from the cross, you would have heard Jesus expiring, dying right there, before your very eyes. You would have seen that. And you could have been able to report that, this guy Jesus, and you will have been able to go through this whole account and, and describe in as much detail as you could muster what really took place, that he died and how he died. But the question that still would remain is why? Why did he die? And while you may pick up the political vibes in terms of Judas his own betrayal whether he was a zealot and wanting to force Jesus' hand into coming against the Romans or whether he was just greedy and wanted the money or the, the envy that the Sanhedrin the religious authorities uh, had for Jesus and his position and they wanted him dead uh, Pilate and his fear of Caesar and, and the people and all of that you could have seen that and discerned some of that but the big thing you couldn't have seen is that while Jesus was dying a transaction was occurring between the son of god and his father for that moment in time the sins of sinners were being paid for and the wrath of god was being satisfied exhausted extinguished that we know because it's been revealed to us. Because through the Scriptures, you read beginning in the Old Testament, you can see all of this going to happen. As, as, as we see a priest, and we see a sacrifice, and we see a, an Ark of the Covenant, and we see a mercy seat, a seat of propitiation, and we see blood being spilled because a lamb has been slain. And when Jesus comes on the scene, and John the Baptist announces him as the very Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and as Jesus comes, and he is identified by his Father as his son in whom he is well-pleased, and he identifies with sinners even in the context of his baptism, and he tells of his death that is to come and why it is to come, and he dies, and he comes back resurrected and tells his disciples who then spread that word ultimately by the Holy Spirit this revelation of why he died. And so that's what we're after. We're after why Jesus died, what's the purpose for which he died. I get the impression, even as I read the Gospels, that the the Gospel accounts are rather subtle about the death of Jesus, and that is how he died. Very clear on that he died. The point being, why? What purpose for which Christ died? Last week, we began this quest to ferret out of the Scripture, to see in the Scripture why it is Christ died, the purpose for which he died. And we found something, at least I I find this astounding. And that is, first and foremost, the reason Christ died was to glorify his Father. And he glorified his Father by vindicating his Father's righteousness. Because it appears that there was a council before the foundation of the world between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and God himself, whereas the Father said that he desired to save sinners. And the son then took it upon himself, knowing that it was impossible for his father to save sinners and still be righteous. Because how could one who is righteous pardon the guilty? And so the son takes it upon himself, first and foremost, out of love for his father and honor for his father's righteousness. And so he goes to the cross. And what you saw was that Christ was beaten and died. But he did it so that his Father could be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. Now this week, I want to turn our attention to what this particular passage says to us. But before I do, let me tell you why I've come here. I've come here because I believe that this passage helps us to marvel if nothing else. Helps us to marvel, to be astounded at, to sit in awe of God. When I read this passage that I've read, and when I think about it, as I'll think about it with you in a minute, it causes me to marvel at God, at his absolute sovereignty, his irreproachable righteousness, his incomprehensible Love, really. And it causes me to marvel and well at my own salvation. I must confess to you, as I've confessed, as long as you know me, that I'm a flabbergasted Christian. By that I mean, it's astounding to me that I have eternal life. I simply don't know why, other than what the Bible tells me about God giving that to me. Hook, line, and sinker, from first to last, beginning to end. I simply look at my own life, and I simply understand my own heart, and I know the holiness of God, and it's amazing to me. It's simply amazing to me, as I look around, that I believe, and there are others who don't, and I just simply don't know why. And I marvel, frankly, at the power of God, and the wisdom of God, and the love of God. Frankly, most particularly, I must say, for me. It's just astounding. Now, whether or not you can save yourself, I don't know, but I can't save me. And I know that deeply, and yet the very fact that I have eternal life is astounding to me. And then when I read this passage, it increases my security, my assurance. There's an old dead hymn writer, 18th century. Didn't live long. Only lived from 1740 to 1778. Had a funny name. Augustus Toplady. Wrote a number of songs. I don't know that we sing any of them, quite frankly. I read them from time to time. But, uh, but he had this line in one of his, his hymns. He says... Let me read it so I don't mess it up. He says, More happy, but not more secure, the glorified saints in heaven... More happy, but not more secure, the glorified saints in heaven. Now let me take that and remove the poetry and and give it to you like this. He's saying, the saints, the glorified saints in glory, those ones who are in heaven right now, Christians, believers in heaven, are more happy than us. That goes without saying. If that's not true, I don't want to go there. So, they're more happy. But this he adds to that, but they're not more secure. Now that's significant. They're not any more secure being there. We're just as secure in Christ here as they are there. They're happier. Concede that. Anticipate more happiness. But they're not more secure. This passage, understanding why Christ died and what he accomplished, increases, in fact, to me, solidifies my security in Christ, when I see what he accomplished on the cross. And then, you see, it also increases my hope in this life, hope for my own sanctification, just a big word, for hope in my own growing in holiness. You know, that great saying, you know, I'm, I'm not as bad as I used to be kind of thing. I'm getting, I'm improving, you see. It's an amazing thing to think that a human being can actually improve in holiness. And we trust that, to be the case. And again, because of what Christ accomplished, fulfilled, did on the cross, his intention, the reason for which he came, and it also then increases, for me at least, my boldness and my confidence that others will be saved as well. Because if Christ accomplished something on the cross, then I have hope for others. So that's where I'm headed, and that's why. So think about that application through this. And I hope you can see this. It's going to take me two sermons. So this Sunday, and then I'm not going to be able to preach next Sunday. I have to be out of town next week, but then the week after. So it's going to take me two Sundays. So give me two Sundays to develop this and work this through. Um, next Sunday, George will preach on reconciliation, which is a which is a necessary fit in this as well. So you can't miss that one either. So you can't miss any of them. Um, and don't let my inability. keep you from this blessing continue even if you don't get it in the next couple of sermons from me in these moments don't stop trying to see it Uh, my greatest fear slash prayer is that my inabilities don't inhibit you keep you Uh, so this passage John 17 two questions one What were Jesus' intentions as he came to the cross? What was he thinking about? What was on his mind? What did he see himself... If we could speak of Jesus as an American, this is how an American would put it. What did Jesus see himself doing uh, on the cross, accomplishing there? What was his intention? How did he understand what was going to happen in the moments right after. Because you see, this particular prayer of Jesus is, is right before they come and get him. And it's an intimate prayer. It's the prayer of Jesus, the Son of God to his Father. There's, there are times when I read this particular prayer and I almost think I should look away. I, I, I shouldn't even really listen because, because it's so intimate. Jesus, the Son of God. It's, it's like a listening to a son plead with his father. It's almost not for us. If it weren't here, obviously, we would conclude it wasn't, but it's here, so we must conclude in some sense it is, so we, 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 we think about it. But, but it's a very intimate thing. So what was on his mind? What were the very things in he his heart that he was sharing with his father? And then secondly, I want us to see what it is that Jesus actually accomplished on the cross. And I won't be able to get to that one in full, only in half, ...this week, so that will carry us the second half. And that second half is very important, but but I'll get about three-quarters of the way through, all right? At least in terms of topic, time, not. First question, what was on Jesus' mind? Notice, first one, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted uh, up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. His petition, then, is that he would be glorified, that is, seen, that the majesty of Jesus would be seen. And the way Jesus was going to be glorified on the earth was to be lifted up, that is, crucified. And so he's saying, crucify me, glorify me. That's what I came to do, I came to die. And and his, his intention of being glorified was so that his father would be glorified, so that his father then could do exactly what his father wanted to do, to justify sinners. And he could do that because Jesus would come and die for them. So that's his petition. The ground of his petition, that is the basis for it, is verse 2. Since, or because, you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Now, Jesus is claiming at that point in time that he had been given, at a certain point in time, by his Father, authority over all flesh. Remember last Sunday, we talked about the fact that there was, seems to have been, and this is the only way we can sort of understand it, seems to have been, before the foundation of the world, a summit between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Theologians call it the covenant of redemption, that God covenanted to redeem. And so uh, you get this sense that the Father, according to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, chose in Christ us to be holy and blameless in his sight. The Father elected those who would be saved. And the Son then took it upon himself to save them, to come and die. And the Holy Spirit took it upon himself then, once the Son had died, to come and to apply that salvation to these sinners whom the Father had chosen. And so Jesus said, "Uh, you've given me, in that context, authority over uh, over all flesh. We see that, for instance, in that. if you're quick, you can turn to these. Ephesians 1 uh, verse 10 simply says that, 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 that all of history, all of God's plan is to be summed up in Christ. That, that he's the, the consummation of everything. So he does have authority over all flesh. So the scripture says in Ephesians 1 that God put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him head over all things. And so he has authority over all things. Psalm 2 says that the Father gives to the Son the nations as his inheritance. Jesus, you remember, in John chapter 5, claims that he has been given by the Father the authority to judge. His authority over all flesh, over everything, every human being, ever. His authority over them. Jesus even said to himself, all authority has been given me in heaven and on earth. All authority has been given to me. Okay? So we see that. So he has authority over all flesh, but his intention isn't to give eternal life to all flesh. I don't know how else we can read this passage. He doesn't say, since you've given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all flesh, to every single human being. That was never his intention. He says, I've come to give eternal life to all those you have given me. And all those he had been given by the Father wasn't everybody. We see that as this prayer develops, as very intimately the Father and Son are speaking of these high and lofty things, these things that we would never be able to know, these things that we wouldn't even be able to think and probably shouldn't think because they're beyond us. They're God kinds of thoughts, not human kinds of thoughts. We're not allowed to think these kinds of things unless the Father reveals them to us and says, think like this, It's not up to us to think like this. It's up to him to tell us what he's thinking. And you notice, for instance, verse 6. Jesus said, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. No doubt, he's referring most specifically to his disciples, those whom he had chosen, those the Father had given to him out of the world. And he said, I've manifested your name to them. Then in uh, verse 9, he says... I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Very specific intention. Very specific group of people to whom Jesus was going to give eternal life. That's his thoughts as he's going to the cross. Then, uh, in verse uh, 20, he says, I do not ask for these only. Now, the these are those whom the father had given him that he had already manifested the father's name too revealed the father too and they had already received it I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word now that those is all those who will believe the word of the disciples concerning Jesus throughout all history from Pentecost, if you will, on. And those two, then, are those the Father had given the Son. So he's praying, not for the world, but for these and those. These, the Father had given him out of the world, the disciples, those, the Father had given him out of the world, he would also then believe with the, with the, with the goal, verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me. That's All of the these and the those. The they? Actually better, the us. Biblically. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. That is to give them eternal life because eternal life is to know God in Jesus Christ whom you sent. To see the glorious one. All right? So that's Jesus' intention as he goes to the cross. And if we would ask the question, then, who is it that Jesus is going to die for? In one very universal sense, we could say the world. But that's not specific enough for Jesus as he comes to his Father. He says, no, I have in mind those whom you've given me. They're the ones that I want to give eternal life for. Those are the ones on Jesus' mind at this moment. And of course they are, for that was his Father's intention. And if he's going to carry out the will of his Father as he says he is, then he must have the Father's intention on his mind. What was the Father's intention in this plan that he created? Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he... If I could help you with the pronouns here. He is the Father, chose us in Him, that is, in Christ. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we, now the we there is all those who have been chosen in Christ, that we should be holy and blameless before Him, that is, before the Father. In love, He, the Father, predestined us... All those he chose in Christ for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved, in him. That is, all those who were chosen before the creation of the world to be in Christ. Not those outside, but only those in. Clearly, I don't know how else you can, you can deal with this passage. I have no agenda here other than to read the text. According to the purpose of the word of verse 7. In him, we have redemption through his blood. That is, his blood actually redeemed. It actually paid the price of our, for our freedom. It ransomed us. The blood did. Nothing else was needed but the blood of Christ. Since we were in him... We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. That is consistent, for instance, with Romans and chapter 8. And verse 29 speaks of God as well and what was happening in the cross. The intentions of the Father. For those whom he, that's the Father, foreknew... He also, the Father, predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. And so He's saying there's a group of people that are going to ultimately be glorified. Who are those? Those are the people who have eternal life. Who are they? Those are the people who had been given to Jesus who he had on his mind as he went to the cross, so that their eternal life would be secured, accomplished, gotten, won, whatever word you want to use there. It happened for those people. And you understand, those are the same people then who would obviously, in the course of their life, be justified. Those are the same people who would be called in a special way. Those are the same people that who had been predestined, and those are the same people who God foreknew Now, when the Bible says that he foreknew them, it doesn't mean he foreknew something about them. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that God looked down the corridors of time and saw that these people would come to faith. It doesn't say that he foreknew or he knew about them that they would have faith. It says he foreknew them. And when the Bible speaks of knowing, it means God was intimate with them. The Scripture speaks of Knowing someone, you know, we use this little euphemism of knowing someone in a biblical way. We know what that means. You know, there's an intimacy between the two. They were joined together. When God speaks of knowing us, it means he knew us. He was intimate with us. He had a relationship with us. He knew us particularly. Think about that. Don't get bogged down with all this stuff going through your head. Enjoy this if you're a believer in Christ. Think about the fact that before the foundation of the world, God knew you. Just, I don't care what, just get every other thought out of your mind for a minute and just enjoy that. Think about that. When I think about that, literally right now, cold chills go up and down my back. I don't have a category in my brain for that. And I realize that's why I'm saved. I realize that's why I have eternal life. And I don't know why me. I don't know why when the Father and the Son were coming together to discuss this plan of giving eternal life, and Jesus said, okay, who? And, and my name was among them. I just don't know why. And you may ask, well, why not somebody else's name? I don't know that either. confess, I'm really happy I was on the list. But I haven't got a clue why. I only know that it wasn't because of me. I only know that it wasn't because of something I was going to do. Because if it was, I'm sunk because I'm sure I haven't done it. Or if I did it, I did it wrong. But there you have it, Jesus. He loved me. And every believer and Christ, again, this is consistent with what Jesus said he was going to do all the while. For instance, you heard as we were singing in John chapter 6 and verse 30, 35, Jesus said to them, John six thirty-five. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you that you've seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Okay? He talks about that again in his prayer. Come to give eternal life to those who have given me. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Of course, that's true all the ones that Jesus had in his mind when he went to the cross, all those very ones would be the ones who would ultimately be glorified, thus in this life justified, thus before that called, thus before the foundation of the world predestined and foreknown. These very ones would be the very ones we can identify because they're the ones who believe. They must believe, and so they will believe. And that's how we understand that we're part of that. We come to faith. We come to believe, but we realize we come to believe because we're those that the Father has given to the Son. Jesus explains this again. John chapter 10, it's pervasive through the Scripture. In verse 14, Jesus says of himself, I'm the good shepherd, I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. He doesn't lay down his life for the goats. He never had an, any intention of saving those who do not believe. He only had the intention of saving sheep. He gave his life for the sheep. John 3:16. you know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He did not give His life for those who would not believe in Him. He gave His life for those who would believe in Him. He gave His life so that those the Father had given Him, those who would believe in Him, those who were chosen before the foundation of the world, we can give us all kinds of names. You know, we're a group of people with a lot of nicknames. We're believers, we're followers of Christ, we're Christians, we're elect, we're predestined. We're called, we're justified, we will be glorified, we believe. Let me give you another one. Um, You know, this one, Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus said, I came not to be served, but to serve, and give my life as a ransom for many. Oh, many. Jesus said, as he was breaking bread with his disciples on that, last Passover, First Communion, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. So, we're those who had been given by the Father to the Son. We are the elect. We are those who have been predestined, called, justified, to be glorified. We are those who believe. We are the many then he also said in Ephesians chapter 5 concerning the church that he loved her and gave himself for her so we're also her I want some clarification on that we're the church, we're the one for whom Christ died the church of our Lord Jesus Christ, Titus chapter 2 says that he has given himself for a people so we're also a people Revelation chapter 5 says that he has come to redeem men, people, from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. So we're the redeemed from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. It's in that sense that Jesus died for the world, not just for one specific ethnic group, not just for one particular group of people, but for people from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation, you see. Now, when he died... This is the part that's going to take me two weeks. When he died, what he did, as we learned last week from Romans in chapter 3, is that Romans chapter 3, verse 25, speaking of Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Propitiation means, I'm going to pause. Think about what it means. You should know what it means. If you don't know what it means, you failed last week's sermon. I give extra credit, so we will give you another shot. But propitiation is a very important word for us to know. Propitiation means that an atoning sacrifice was made, meaning that our sins were canceled, forgiven, pardoned, And God's wrath was satisfied, extinguished, exhausted, dealt with in a complete way. So much so, there is no longer a case against us in heaven. That if anyone would bring a case against us, and God looked in the book of life, where our names have been since when? Since before the foundation of the world. Look in the book of life. There's no case pending. No debt outstanding. You see, once sins have been propitiated, they cannot be justly punished, for they have been justly punished. And that's what Christ did on the cross by his blood. For everyone? No. For all those the Father had given him. For all the elect. For all those predestined. For all those called. For all those justified. For all those to be glorified. For all who believe. Not for unbelievers. For all those who believe. For the many. For her. For the church. For us. Because, you see, if the blood of Christ propitiated for all the sins of all people, then everyone would be saved. Because the blood of Christ would have washed All the sins of everybody. And then if a person was in hell, that person would have a case against God, saying, how can you have me here? Since the blood of Christ already satisfied every demand of your law and paid every price for all my sin, even my unbelief, which is a sin. And so we realize that the blood of Christ was a propitiation for all the sins, want to do this with me? For all those the Father has given the Son, For all the elect, for all the predestined, for all the called, for all the justified, for all those who would believe, for the many, for her, for us, you see. Now, why is that important? That's important because if you believe, then you can rest assured that there's nothing for you to do but rest. It's all been done. That's why he came. To do that very work that we could never do. To satisfy the wrath of God. And the blood of Christ needs nothing. The blood of Christ itself, because of its power, propitiates. There's an old hymn Well, there's power in the blood. There is. So much so that it satisfies the wrath of God for us. So much so that nothing need be added to the blood to save those for whom Christ died. It's sufficient in and of itself, to propitiate. Now you see, in order for us, in order for Jesus to guarantee that we would have eternal life, what must He do? He must satisfy the demands of God. He must satisfy the holiness of God. He must satisfy the wrath of God. And He must make sure that we believe and continue to believe. Well, His blood satisfies the very wrath of God. Thus, more happy but not more secure the glorified saints in heaven. We can't be more secure than when the blood of Christ has washed away our sins and has satisfied the wrath of God. But the question remains, will we believe? Will those for whom Christ died believe? That will come that's my father in heaven Father I simply don't know what to say other than thank you The work of Christ is all that we need We thank you that he's come And though it boggles my mind to try to understand even 10% of this and simply rest in it secure, knowing that for reasons unknown to me, other than your love, that you gave my name and all those who believe to Christ. That he agreed that he would painfully and embarrassingly, shamefully take the penalty of my, our sin, that we might have life. I pray you would enable each of us to rest in that and only that. And to worship you, to marvel at your sovereignty, to marvel at your righteousness, to marvel at your power and wisdom, to marvel at your great love, to marvel at your wonderful grace, and to live our whole lives astounded by the fact that we have eternal life. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. As you do, I remind you of our Sunday school class is happening in about 15 minutes. I remind you too of elders available to pray. The response to the benediction is a simple one. Christ died for me. Hallelujah. when you say that, what you say is that you understand that when Jesus went to the cross, he had you in mind when Jesus went to the cross, he went to that cross so that he could give his blood to satisfy God for you. And that's your only hope. That's why you say hallelujah. Please receive this as God's benediction. Now to him, who was able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine through His power that is at work within us, to be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, Christ died for me. Hallelujah.